Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Work Alchemy podcast series on impact, talking with entrepreneurs and organizational leaders who contribute to building a more cooperative and positive future. I'm Ursula York, the host of this series. I'm a mentor to business people who want to have a positive effect on the world around them, building strong businesses by creating value for their clients, team members, and the larger world. I am so passionate about sharing with you the stories of entrepreneurs and leaders who have impact. They're inspiring and energizing role models. I hope you use what you learn here to be inspired about what you can do in your business and beyond. For ongoing inspiration and support to get clear on your impact and put it into action, enter your name and email at workalchemy.com. Today's guest in this podcast series on impact is Brian Boxer Walkler. Brian is the world's leading authority on keratoconus, refractive surgery, and creator of the revolutionary eyebright eye whitening procedure. He's devoted his career to the field of vision correction. For two decades, he's been a pioneering doctor with a thriving career in clinical, academic, and laboratory settings. He boasts an unparalleled history of awards and accomplishments, many of which have single-handedly changed the practice of ophthalmic surgery. Brian is currently the medical director of the eponymous Boxer Walkler Vision Institute in Beverly Hills and a staff physician at Los Angeles' famed Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Brian also recently published a book, Perceptual Intelligence, The Brain's Secret to Seeing Past Illusion, Misperception, and Self-Deception. So welcome, Brian. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. I'm happy to be here, Ursula. (laughs) So what is it that brought you to this interest of perceptual intelligence? I mean, you have a clinical practice, you're doing uh, many different things, and and, uh, this just seems like um, a whole new realm for you. Tell us a bit about how you came to become interested in this whole area. I have to take you back to when I was in sixth grade in elementary school, where I secretly checked out from the library, Judy Bloom's classic, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And it was because I was curious how the mind of the opposite sex worked. And so fast forward to UCLA, I was a psychobiology major, which is a combination of psychology and biology, because I wanted to better understand the inner workings of our mind and our brain. And also through that time, I had been an entrepreneur, even from a young age, from doing the lemonade stands and garage sales to even in college, I had started my own SAT preparation company that was um, by, by cassette tapes, essentially, mm-hmm. um, what people would call nowadays like information marketing. Right. And um, so I always wanted to be a doctor, though, and then became a doctor and became an ophthalmologist. And the real catalyst for me to start writing the book came in 2014 when I was in Sochi, Russia for the Olympics. And I was there for moral support for my patient and dear friend, Stephen Holcomb. And he was the U.S. Olympic gold medal winning bobsledder who had won gold in 2010 in Vancouver after he had a a set of procedures that I did for his eye disease called keratoconus, which causes a lot of vision distortion. So he came back and won the gold, which was the first time for the United States in 62 years. 
Let me give you a sense of how long ago that was. That was when Harry Truman was president. And wow. um, that's that's been a while. <laughs> it was a while. It was a while. So it, it really there was a lot of news coverage about that and about care to conus. So then in 2014, when I was there, I witnessed Stephen winning more than just two bronze medals for the U.S. But I also saw how Vladimir Putin was manipulating the world's perception of himself compared to what he was really doing. And that's when I started writing. Wow. And you talk about this in your book. I, it's a, such a fascinating thing that you observed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Putin, at the time of the Olympics, was riding the epitome and the height of what you could have in terms of PR because the Olympics won off without a hitch. There was no terrorism, which people were concerned about. The U.S. State Department warned all Americans, do not go to Sochi, cancel your plans because of terrorism. Mm -hmm. But everything went off very smoothly. And the doping scandal with the Russians, um, that hadn't come out yet. So he was really riding high. And he, at the time, had put the Olympics in a place that's essentially a seaside resort for mid-level bureaucrats to vacation, which has the climate essentially of northern Florida. But yet he was, you know, had the ego to be able to do what almost seemed impossible and have Winter Olympics there. So then, you know, of course, after the Olympics, he invaded Ukraine and he didn't care about how he had uh, lost so much of the cachet and goodwill that he had banked because his ego and his perception of himself is so distorted that he did these really treacherous things and more things came out too after of course and that's just an example of how his perception and a lot of people in the country of him as well is distorted and really not consistent with reality and that speaks to perceptual intelligence which was the springboard for the book yeah well and he's he's certainly been effective in manipulating public opinion certainly within russia and to some extent internationally as well oh definitely definitely and just to give you a a, a little bit of a sense of his ego he actually was with the owner of the new england patriots robert Kraft, and he stole his Super Bowl ring right in front of him and just walked away. And Kraft was just like wow. a little kid in, at the, uh, you know, who got bullied on the playground and just couldn't do any and didn't do anything about it because, you know, this is Vladimir Putin. So it was like the billionaire bully of billionaires. Wow. That's extraordinary to hear um, that kind of behavior. It's, um, Another thing that you talk about in the book is, is this whole idea of um, reciprocity, which obviously wasn't operating in that case, but um, it's, it's something that some marketers talk about of, of creating this sense of uh, someone owing you something by, by giving something first, and that um, can be a way that you can choose to market. And can you talk a bit about how, how do we get into this whole reciprocity thing when we see that um, we're, we're receiving something small and then the, the opposite effect happens that, that you end up um, giving back something much larger. And you put it in such articulate terms, so I'll let you talk about it further. We have a whole chapter on this in the book that describes, first of all, psychologically, how we have a need to give back when somebody's done something for us, a little bit like 
tit for tat in a way because we don't want to feel guilty. We don't want to carry the guilt that we received something and then didn't reciprocate back in return. And there's a great study that was done with holiday cards. And the researchers picked out random people out of the phone book who they didn't know, and they sent holiday cards to them around the holiday time. And a high percentage of those recipients sent holiday cards back to them. They had their return address on the car, on the envelope. And so it's really, I mean, usually you send holiday cards to people who you care about, or friends, or business colleagues, people who you, actually who, know. Who you really know. Okay. But here, psychologically, the, the power to, to pull that tractor beam, if you will, drew people and the guilt that they needed to give back and do the same in return to completely random people. So in business, uh, another example of how we see this is when you go into a car dealership and you're just looking around. Well, the salesperson starts giving you lots of free goodies and donuts and chips perhaps or nuts and starts then pouring you unlimited coffee refills, not because the salesperson feels sorry that you look so sleepy. It's because they're hoping that they'll trigger the reciprocation principle in you in terms of putting a down payment for a few thousand dollars on a car. And that's, that's a very common example. It's used in business quite a lot. And the thing about it too, is that the give back does not have to be proportional to what you received. There's a complete disconnect in value there. It's almost as if there's just a checkbox of give back that's irrespective of what the value was. So in, the example of the car dealership, maybe it was $15 worth of coffee and goodies, but certainly buying a car or leasing a car that could be $20,000 is disproportionate to the $15, but it still clears the balance sheet in the person's head a lot of times that they've at least reciprocated. Hmm. Well, and, and it certainly works to the salesperson's advantage in that example. Um, it does. It does. Yeah. yeah. Have, has your um, practice or the way that you you connect with your patients has it changed at all now that you've done all this research in the realm of perceptual intelligence and and really developed such a deep understanding of it? Has it shifted how you work? Over time, it has. Of course, as a, as a physician the most important thing is to take care of people. But on the other hand, being a doctor and being able to be successful and, and do what you want to do, which is help people, you have to understand business and you have to understand people. And you never get this education in medical school. And so, you know, fortunately I was able to find people who were like mentors to me along the way and was able to learn what I needed to do in order to be able to fulfill my goal, which is to help people as, as a physician. So yeah, there's definitely a number of things that we do to help ensure that we are able to you know, maintain the practice that, that we want. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and you're dealing with people whose own perceptions may or may not be reflecting the potential of, of what could happen in terms of cure or improving their condition. And I imagine that an understanding 
of perceptual intelligence kind of helps you bring people to a greater understanding of, of how they can improve their situation. Would, would, is that fair to say? Definitely, definitely. Because when someone has a medical condition, they have a mindset that can either be helpful and constructive or destructive and self-defeating. So having the insight, and you could apply the same concept to customers too. If you know customers have a problem, that's why they're seeking a business solution. And there, there are some nuances that are a little different, but I think being able to position yourself as a trusted advisor is really important in business as well as as a doctor. And I think there are some people, um, a real expert in that area is Ari Gelper, who really is a specialist and developed a lot of trust-based selling for people in business. Mm -hmm. And you know what he found is that when people have that level of trust, and that doesn't always mean initially that someone's going to be a customer, but long term it's better for the person who's trying to sell because it can take some of the pressure off of, of making everything a numbers game and can really add a add true value to the person because if you if your mindset is shifted that you really want to help people and not just close a deal then it changes everything else in how you do business downstream mm -hmm. well and and one of the things you talk about in the book too is intuition and how that really can be utilized if you have high perceptual intelligence you can really learn to listen to those ideas or those moments where you're hearing someone speaking and you're really understanding what's behind what they're saying right and you know the way i think about perceptual intelligence as as it's described in the book is that it's our ability to interpret our experiences to separate fantasy from reality and so it, in a way it's like having a built-in bs detector in your head so you can make better and smarter decisions in your life right. and i like to think of perceptual intelligence as to two spectrums on one side of it is the critical thinking and the analytical which is really important so you can tease out because you know get so much information coming at us all the time especially now that we have access to the internet and social media and tv and so we want to be able to tease out, well, what's really true? But then on the other side of the spectrum is our intuition and our gut feelings, which is when you have a concept come to you, and it could be any time, could be when you're waking up or starting to fall asleep, and these ideas just come to you. And as it turns out, research has shown that a lot of times those can be things that are bubbling up from your subconscious to try to help guide you in a direction um, that you should consider. And this is something that even Albert Einstein and Thomas Edison and Nicholas Tesla and even the Beatles and Oprah Winfrey and even investor George Soros credit to their success as listening to their intuition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in the, in the ways that you're now um, present in, in the larger world, I mean, you, you have your practice and other work that you're doing in the medical realm and now in perceptual intelligence, what, what are some of the ways that you are, through your work, you're impacting people with 
not just your patients, but now a, a larger audience. What are the what is the impact do you think of of what you're of the work that you're doing now? It's helping people make better decisions, whether it's in their personal life or it's in their business life as well, because the information in the book helps people better understand and clarify what people mean and what they say and do. And that elevates your game so you can ultimately have what you want in life, whether it's a better job or more success in the job, or even there's a chapter on sex um, or other areas in your life. So in a way, without the information, people will keep repeating the same patterns a lot of times, and that makes it hard for them to achieve these things. Well, is, um, is the work that you are doing um, as it's evolved, is it a reflection of something perhaps more foundational that's, that's happening for you? I, the conversations that I've had with people around this topic of impact, of making a difference in the world, has been based on values. I mean, my, my, my belief is that people act consciously or unconsciously based on what they hold as most important. So one of the things you mentioned is that you went into medicine in order to, to help people. Are there other values that are coming into play in, in your own practice, your own business, and, and in writing the book? That's really the thing that is underlying everything that I do. And I have two twin girls uh, with my wife, Selena, and they're 11 years old. And even in parenting, you know, I, we make the messaging and, and also by example, too, that we're here to help people. And I think everybody finds their own way that they best can do that. And if it's helping people in business solve business-related problems, that's part of being able to help people too. But um, because I believe that, I really feel that, and that's my intuition for a long time that I've listened to, that drives really everything I do. And even if it's writing a book about helping people improve their perception and their perceptual intelligence about information that they're reading and, and hearing and uh, listening to, that's part of helping people. So that's why it's still consistent. When, I, when people understand that, they're like, oh, of course, well, it makes sense now that he's doing a book about this because you know, he wants to help people in any way that he can. And in, in some ways, I'm, I'm helping more people because these are not um, necessarily patients coming in to see me who are getting and reading the book. Sure. Yeah, and it just occurred to me that with all the, all the uh, fake news that's circulating out there, that uh, mm -hmm. improving your PI is really a way of being able to better filter that and make choices about what's real and what's not real. Well, let me give you two examples that people can really relate to is one is with celebrities and it's because of the halo effect that they can influence people outside of their craft and actress Jamie Lee Curtis used to do commercials for Activia yogurt mm -hmm. and the problem was the company's claim of improved digestion turned out to be false but because she was a celebrity 
she, along with the company, essentially hijacked the perceptual intelligence of a lot of people who rushed out and bought that yogurt expecting a benefit. And even right now in the news with the halo effect of celebrities, with all of the sexual misconduct coverage coming out now, that's also result of the halo effect of uh, largely men who were in power positions and women largely were the ones who because of the halo effect were drawn in but we're seeing now a huge change in the empowerment of women especially because of all these media stories which is helping them make better decisions because now they understand what's happening and they feel more comfortable to either say no and then also report unwanted sexual advances. So we're seeing this empowerment and change in society's perceptual intelligence, which is also ha affecting men who might otherwise do this too, think twice. Mm -hmm. so, so that's an example of halos and with celebrities, but that could be for anyone in power for that matter. Yeah. And when people understand that, then they can be more bulletproof against being influenced. But another example is when people read things on the internet, there's so, so much information like you just mentioned, there's the fake news and a lot of false information out on the internet too. And there was one example where uh, the onion, which is a really clever comedy website to put out a lot of really funny stuff. Right. They, they put out a joke press release stating that Johnson & Johnson, the makers of Visine, have now come out with eye-whitening strips. A number of people called the company asking where they could buy them and said that, well, we don't make them. Well, then people started calling my office because I had developed an eye-whitening procedure and my staff said, they don't exist. Some people then said, can I just buy the Crest teeth whitening strips and put those in my eyes? Ouch. Wow. <laughs> exactly. And they said, no, no, that's dangerous. Don't do that. So you do have to now especially have really heightened critical thinking skills to be able to sift through all of this information that's coming at us because of the internet. And the book helps people understand that and do that better. Yeah, and that's a really powerful contribution because with, I mean, there's certainly no lack of information available, but people's ability to be able to filter it and assess whether the source is valuable, whether it makes sense, even from a um, logic point of view, that critical thinking aspect that you mentioned is really uh, something that needs to be developed because there's, there's no other way for us to deal with that massive information except to take some self-responsibility and really make an effort to screen what we decide to, to look at. And having an awareness of that process is what is also very powerful because a lot of times it's emotions and inner needs that are driving people to make these decisions based on what they're receiving information wise. Mm -hmm. And emotions are very powerful when they're tied to beliefs and certainly can override rational thought as I just discussed with the eye whitening, um, teeth whitening example. So when people at least are aware that their emotions are in play where they wouldn't have otherwise, that does help them take a pause so that they can have an opportunity to enable their critical thinking abilities to evaluate what they're 
reading or watching it from the information aspects. Yeah. Well, I, I, some of the things that I talk about in these interviews is really dipping into um, how your experience of having impact has evolved. And I, I wonder what's a personal trait that you have that you think has been most helpful to you in having the kind of impact that, that you have and want to have? Believing in myself, I think, has been really important. And I've definitely had my ups and downs in my career. And when I developed this one procedure called C3R, it's for keratoconus, the eye condition where the cornea is weakened and bulges out. It was at a time when I was actually trained in my fellowship to do cornea transplants for keratoconus, and that was the standard treatment. And the story I'm about to explain is, has a principle that applies to anybody in business or anything else in their lives. And I thought when I gave my first talk at a scientific meeting that I was going to get what you might see in the movies, like a big standing ovation, of being heralded as you know something this is a wonderful you know changing and development in our field right well after i gave my first talk i was completely shocked because i had half-hearted claps you know i there wasn't the enthusiasm and as a matter of fact when i got off the podium i had doctors coming up to me accosting me saying you know, you should just keep doing cornea transplants because this procedure uh, is a non-invasive 30-minute procedure that strengthens the cornea with vitamin applications and light and prevents cornea transplants for people with keratoconus. Mm -hmm. But I had people who were doing cornea transplants coming up to me and just, you know, discrediting me. It was, you know, because as it turned out later, I found out that they were threatened and it was threatening part of their practice, if people are not getting cornea transplants because of this procedure, they're having less revenue. Mm -hmm. And that was really a surprise to me. And I went through and I actually was invited to give a TEDx talk about my story and journey with this procedure. And ultimately I decided, even though there were some pretty dark times, and I remember talking to my wife, Selena, wondering if I should just give up doing C3R and just be back in the old boys club, so to speak, by doing cornea transplants and not rocking the boat anymore. And ultimately, I had the confidence to believe in myself and to believe in what I was doing, that it was the right thing and the better thing to do in terms of helping people. And ultimately, when Stephen Holcomb won that gold medal in Vancouver in 2010, because there was so much media coverage somebody essentially going from being legally blind to winning an Olympic gold medal. It was massively covered um, in the news. That really silenced a lot of the critics that I had in the field. And that was a huge turning point for me. So I think believing in yourself, if you're pursuing something in business um, and having that intuition and that gut feeling that you really believe in too is really important. And that was a guiding factor for me. And I think a lot of people have that ability if they are open to it and recognize it. Well, and that's a powerful story because you're, you're introducing something in a helping profession and the expectation is, wow, this is great. It's going to make things a lot simpler and be able to uh, 
um, have a non-invasive procedure that you can do with patients and then have, have it be not embraced and, and um, there's a lot of resistance to it, it's, it can really slow you down. It can, it's tough being a pioneer because you're out there, you're visible as someone who's going against the grain, going against what people have historically done. And it's a tough position to be out there all on your own. Especially in some fields like medicine, which tends to be pretty insular. Mm -hmm. And if you are going to be stepping outside of the club, uh, it may or may not be welcomed what you're doing. And you can see the same in some business areas too as well. So I believe ultimately people need to have that confidence in themselves uh, to trust themselves uh, that they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, related to that experience, are there ways that you kind of maintain your belief in yourself? Are there practices that you have or are there things that you do in order to keep your uh, sense of making a contribution um, intact as you're, as you're doing these different things? Yes, I, I always want to do something that I feel is true to myself. and. If I would be tempted to do something otherwise, somebody wants me to endorse uh, a product or a procedure or along those lines that I don't believe in, I'm not going to do that. So I'm going to always just be true to who I am. And so when I go to bed at night, I can go to bed at night and sleep well and, and not have conflicts of, you know, should I have done that? Should I not have done that? Or... I know this wasn't really the right ethical thing, but I did it because of X, Y, and Z. I always want to be true to myself and what guides me. And that's where I filter everything through. Yeah. Are there things that you do in, I mean, you, you're a busy person. You've got a lot of different things going on. Are there things that you do to ensure that you're taking care of yourself physically, physically and mentally and emotionally in terms of self-care? I think that's a great question, and I have always been a bit of an athlete from high school and college. I was on the rowing team, and even though I had not rowed after college, I had always been physically active, you know, whether going to the gym during all of my training and my studies through medical school and residency, <clears throat> and so I got back into rowing about seven years ago, and I really enjoy the competitive aspect of it, being out in the water and still competing in what's sort of maybe euphemistically called master's category. <laughs> and, um, but staying physically active has been, I mean, so many studies have shown for health benefits in virtually every area in health and in stress reduction, exercise, physical activity is really important because it's flushing out a lot of substances that have just accumulated based on not being active. And that makes a huge improvement also in someone's ability to sleep better at night, which is very important for so many things, including stress reduction as well. And that helps people in business become much more effective and have more clarity in their thinking. So that's been one of the things that has been really a, a regimen that I've en enjoyed and followed. And even for people who don't enjoy working out, 
there's a whole chapter in the book on athletics and sports and perceptual intelligence that even talks about why some people don't want to get up and work out and just would rather just stay back in bed and hit the snooze button. But what happens when people can change that so they are more excited about working out and they, they change the cycle to be in their benefit? Well, Brian, if it's, I'd like to kind of bring this to um, kind of a fine point and really draw on your own experience in your business, in your practice, and with the work that you're doing in perceptual intelligence now. Is there a piece of advice or an insight that you would share with someone who's thinking, well, I'd like to have an impact. I'd like to make more of a contribution. What would you share with them? I think really see what you are passionate about because if you're not passionate about something that you're doing just for the sake of trying to make money, that's not going to be a long-lived type of endeavor. And it's not to say that that can't be done and you know is done all the time, but I think for real satisfaction in life, is to find what you really are passionate about doing. And once you find that, then work doesn't become work. You never are looking at the clock and never wondering, okay, when is it time to sort of check out and go home? Then you feel really satisfied. And I think everybody has that in them to find, and it's not always easy. And that's why a number of friends of mine you know, went to law school and ended up not going into law school and doing something different because what they initially thought didn't turn out to be where they were passionate, as an example. So I think that that's really important for that long-term satisfaction out of what you do. Right. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think that you're clearly somebody who's passionate about what, what you do, and I, I thank you for sharing your own experience and all the things that you've developed and learned about perceptual intelligence and helping people make better decisions, develop not just their critical thinking, but also their intuition and really um, have that as a tool for us to be able to approach the world in a way that uh, really creates a more enhanced experience. Um, so thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. My pleasure. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? For perceptual intelligence inquiries, the website perceptualintelligence.com. Anything related to the practice is boxerwalkler.com. And the book is available on Amazon and everywhere books are sold, Barnes and Noble, etc. And by the way, I mentioned before that there is an amazing chapter on sex, so <laughs> we didn't get really a chance to talk about it, but do get the book and check it out now. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you again, Brian. Appreciate you being here and uh, for the impact that you have in the world. Thank you very much, Ursula. It was a real pleasure. Join us for more podcasts on impact. Subscribe to the Work Alchemy podcast channel on iTunes or Stitcher Radio so you'll be notified as soon as new podcasts are available. Thank you to everyone listening for being here. Until next time, 
to keep that positive flow of energy going in your business so you can have your own impact, join our community of entrepreneurs like you by entering your name and email at workalchemy.com.